Welcome to the Life and Times of Captain Bernie Miller. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me, as always, is the cadet himself, Chris Tashu. Hey, Mike, it's me, Detective Luger. That's the way he sounds. I wish I could do his voice. I can't, and I just embarrass myself. But boy, I've come around on James Gregory's Inspector Luger quite a bit. On this episode, we are talking about three episodes of the original, the one and only Barney Miller, talking about Sniper, which was released January 22nd, 1976, Fear of Flying, which was released January 29th, 1976, and Block Party. Remember Block Parties? Nope. I'm too young for that one, pal. Also grew up in a rural area where I didn't have any neighbors, (laughs) which also doesn't help. That was released February 12th, 1976. It must have taken a week off for uh, Groundhog Day, because we know that's a very important holiday. According to Jack Frost, it is. Damn straight. (laughs) Shameless (laughs) cross-promotion. What a weird week to take off, huh? Maybe it was Easter. Who knows what was going on? Maybe they just were having a little trouble. Maybe uh, Barbara Barry got lost on the way to the set again, and they just decided to credit her and not actually show her in the episode. Weird. I'm, like, never going to get over it. I'm sorry. It's a point of contention for me, because Hal Linden's Barney Miller is is great, but that chemistry is so good, I don't know why you and I are the only ones who see see it as, like, a worthy thing to invest time in. So I'm going to have to find the uh, sound of a horse being beaten to death. Every fucking time, man. (laughs) Every time. It never ends. Interesting episode. It's basically like just two stories this time. Just an A and a B story. There's not really a C story happening. I was pretty entertained by this one. Uh, Let's break it down a little bit. The two stories that we have, we have the titular sniper. Do we ever... No, we don't catch the sniper. We don't, or we don't see the sniper. He's caught by another precinct. He's always doing something off screen, and the characters are always coming into the precinct reacting to that off screen thing. And it is about as lazy and contrived as you can get. Because, like you said, it doesn't go anywhere. None of the characters are really ever. I don't. I never felt like they were actually being threatened. And the blow off is so lame. And so just kind of like, and that's it. It's like, that doesn't always work. And in this episode, it really doesn't. Because that's that's the issue with a a plot taking place off screen. And it should have been the other way around. They tricked us right at the beginning. After you've got this nice little light scene of Yamana writing on the blackboard with this incredibly squeaky chalk. Right. And then you go from that, and we're light, and we're happy, and we're making fun of Nick. And then next thing you know, Wojo's been shot. It's like, what the fuck? And then boom, ba-da-doom, ba-da-doom. I'm like, wait, no, no, you can't just cut away from that. But no, he's been shot at. He's been shot at by a sniper. And the hole had to be this big, Barn. It's really lazy, isn't it? It is. It feels like it's from a different TV show that is not as well written as this show normally is. Though I was glad that Luger ends up being shot at uh, later on, because he's basically making fun of Wojo for only being shot at once. Yeah, and then he uh, he ingratiates himself to Fish at the end of the episode, as always. 
Yeah, it's 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 not the best episode of the show. It's not even a very good one. It's just it's in this weird middle ground where the B plot should have been the A plot. And if it had been, there may have been more to say about the B plot than there is because the B plot ends up just being kind of an extended joke, a very dragged out joke. Well, and it's a real shame because the people that are involved in the B plot, I mean, I'm not familiar with the guy that played uh, Mr. I'm trying to remember his name, Mr. Sobel. But obviously, Charlotte Ray as Mrs. Sobel, you know, she was such a major part of my childhood, uh, being Mrs. Garrett in uh, both different strokes and the facts of life. And then the guy that plays Morton Hackler is Jay Robinson, who was the villain from Dr. Shrinker. He was in a Star Trek episode. I just watched an episode of Voyagers. Thanks for getting me hooked on Voyagers after we talked about Bill and Ted's uh, excellent adventure. So he was on that, and he's great. He's a great character actor, but I've never seen him so subdued, because usually he is like the mustache-twirling, cackling, kind of crazy guy. And in this, he's just so sedate, and he's all into this like transcendental meditation where you can leave your body behind and visit Saturn. It needed a little bit more of a devious character, It doesn't hit because the character of Morton Hackler, you really feel like he believes his own bullshit. And you need a character who is tongue-in-cheek letting you know he does not believe the bullshit. He is putting... Because I don't think he believes that he's clearly putting one over on people. But they don't do a very good job of letting you, the audience, see that. Yeah, I mean, it really needed a little bit more of an oomph for that. I mean, I think it I think it just goes to show the B-plot is underserved by being the B-plot this time around. And this is kind of the first time we've run into this. Most of the time, the A-plot is pretty good. I mean, it, it can fail, but most of the time when it fails, the rest of the episode doesn't do very well on its own either. And in this episode, the A-plot kind of fails, and the B-plot holds it together enough, but the B-plot is not as good as it could have been because it is the B-plot. Mr. Sobel just kind of hanging out in the precinct while everybody runs away. It's like, I guess that's supposed to be a joke that they're all running out of the precinct to check on like Luger and check on Wojo and... Yeah, he's just kind of there. It's almost like the next episode where there's the guy who just keeps coming back to the precinct. That makes a lot more sense. The guy who lost the 35 or found the $3,500 and he keeps coming back to check and see if anybody has claimed it. That makes sense and that's funny, but this guy Sobel just hanging out doesn't really cut it for me. No, and the way that the story ends up concluding, I don't think is very interesting either. Again, just disappointing in that respect, because you see where the story is ultimately going to go. I mean, the story is ultimately going to go with, oh, he he says the line that he's never said to his wife before that she called him out for. And of course, there you go. And that's the that's the conclusion. And then, oh, they add the little funny bit about, oh, where did, were they? They're in Philadelphia. And that's where hell is. And it's like, OK, I get it. I see where you're going. And it is nice that it ties it all back in. But it just feels like too little too late. Yeah, it's a nice little zinger from Fish at the end. I was like, okay, that worked. Yeah, exactly. It's it's got that little and that's it. And it's like, you know, doesn't always work. It just it just doesn't. And that's unfortunate. I have to say I liked the next episode better, Fear of Flying. 
we have a couple things going on. There's a fight between Fish and Bernice about taking separate vacations, which is just kind of running through it and kind of works. But then there's this whole story of Mr. Clooney, who is played by uh, the one and only Jack Riley. Are you familiar with Jack Riley? I'm not. I'm more familiar with Valerie Curtin, who plays his one of two wives. Okay, where do you know Valerie Curtin from? Because I didn't really recognize her. From Toys, but that's because she plays like a minor role in that movie. I just recognized her from that movie. I mean, I know who she is because I'm a huge fan of a movie as terrible as Toys. I mean, Toys is not a good movie. I'm not going to sit here and claim that it is, but it's a lot of stupid fun. I don't think I've ever actually seen it before. Wow. Well, we could change that. I do <laughs> I do remember Jack Riley from um, History of the World Part 2, Part 1. That's what I remember him from. Yeah, he and Mel Brooks worked together several times, but I mostly know him from his work that he did with Bob Newhart. And he was one of Bob Newhart's uh, frequent patients, and he was absolutely fantastic in that. The other frequent uh, patient is the guy that played Gordy the Ghoul. So whenever I would see him, I'd be like, oh, hey, it's the guy from uh, Bob Newhart. Something Fiedler? Fiedler? John Fiedler. Yeah, 12 Angry Men, John Fiedler, yeah. Why isn't he in this show? Come on. I'm waiting for it. I mean, we're around the time. I mean... We're only a couple years removed from Goldshack at this point, right? We're like, what, four years removed from Goldshack? Yeah, but that was Chicago and this is New York. Come on. Sure. And we are, we are, we are reminded how, how much of New York it is all the time. Yes. It is very, very, very New York. Jack Riley plays Frederick Clooney, who is a bigamist, but he doesn't really like to think that he's a bigamist, he likes to think of himself more as a Gemini. So he's got yeah. two of everything, including two wives. Also not a Mormon. How do I know that? Because they mention it specifically. Yeah. Call it right out there. Well, it's kind of odd that they ask him and he's just like, nope. And it's like, what? That's a little bit of a twist. I mean, it's a little bit of a twist. And I'm not saying that because all Mormons are bigamists. I'm saying that because that feels like the easy joke. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> you you think I was going somewhere that I wasn't. <laughs> I'm just commenting that they didn't go for the low-hanging fruit because this is, again, a show that has gone for the low-hanging fruit so many times at this point, especially with its treatment of homosexual characters and female characters. So it's nice to see them not just go, oh, he's a Mormon and Mormons are weird. Like, thank God it wasn't that. Nor did he try to massacre anybody. It's true. In the name of uh, Joseph Smith. But I did like this episode a fair bit. I did like the fact that Wojo is afraid of flying, which is pretty hilarious, given how much of a hard ass his character attempts to be. But yeah, I also really like the B-plot with the uh, with Mr. Woolen, who keeps coming back in and trying to figure out what's, what's the deal with this $3,500. My favorite thing of Wojo being afraid of flying is that Harris gives him a copy of Erica Jong's Fear of Flying, which in 1973 was a very, well, I can't say it was necessarily controversial, but it was a uh, very frank in its portrayal of female sexuality. So when Wojo comes back and is just like, there was nothing about flying in that book at all. <laughs> I do like a lot of Harris in these episodes. Harris is given a lot to do in these episodes. 
Yeah, he really has come into his own, and oh, yeah. there's no fear of the uh, the other black guy coming in and taking his position. <laughs> no, the other character who disappeared just as easily as Mike did. Well, at least he showed up twice. That's Mike fair. only had that one time. Hey, Mike! Bye, Mike! Uh, I do like that we get another uh, Detective Yamana coffee joke. I believe that this is now the second or third time we have seen the get him some coffee uh, I think this might actually be the second time. This might be the first time after we saw it the initial time. But it was so good that they needed an epicac. <laughs> get him the coffee. Or get her the coffee. So good. Right on. So it. And I did like y- Yamada. Do you take cream and sugar? <laughs> I, I will say the whole her overdosing in the bathroom thing. It's a little hokey. It, it felt a, it felt a little out of place. But then it also felt good because she makes it into the bathroom before fish can get in there, which I also liked. It's 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 good. I wouldn't say it's great, but it's a definitely an interesting direction to take the episode. Given I didn't foresee that being the direction they were going. I have to say, of the three episodes, I think Block Party is probably the strongest because it actually deals with the relationships of the people in the precinct, and we've got the return of Wentworth, which I think everybody that listens to the show, all five people, know how much we like Detective Wentworth, Linda Lavin back in, in this role, and I like that they're actually paying off what they set up in that stakeout episode where they're at the hotel. I think it was called Grand Hotel. So that was really nice that they actually had that spark and then kept fanning that fire off screen, and now we get to see that they actually have a relationship. Join me, if you will, for another episode of Barney Miller, where a character is introduced off screen again, and then shows up unassumingly to the rest of us, not expecting her to be there, when she should have been in the show the whole time. Her chemistry with Max Gale and the rest of the precinct is so good I know Linda Lavin gets her own show with Alice, and I know that it's it's this year, in the run of this show, it's in 76 that that year her show starts, and I understand that's why she's not going to be in this show as much anymore, because she has her own show, but it is a fucking shame, because she and Max Gale are so good together, and her and Hal Linda, I mean, her and all of the characters are really great together, and... Again, while I understand that this show is a primarily male-run show, male-driven show from the cast, I'm not talking about the people behind the camera, the injection of Wentworth into this show really does amp up the comedy and give it a a little bit more of a different spin than your usual blue-collar cops working in a precinct together. Well, and I like that she is a sexual being and she's confident in her sexuality, and that she actually makes Wojo uncomfortable because of her being a sexual being, just like, hey, we're going to go home and we're going to drink and we're going to fool around. I love it. Yeah, I mean, that that bit at the end of the episode's great because, again, it's like, yeah, I'm going to flex my muscles. I'm going to flex my character's muscles as a strong, independent woman. And that's and that's perfect for this show. It needs something like that. It's not the end of the world if it doesn't have it. But I would like for a strong female character to be in here more. I mean, Barbara Barry is criminally credited, and that's kind of it. So, you know, Wentworth is a good addition. And uh, George Murdoch is Scanlon is a real piece of shit. 
But I like that he's a piece of shit, because it totally works. I even like his little kind yeah. of thing that he does. <laughs> I uh, I was trying to rack my brain to remember what I've seen him in. I know he plays God in that terrible Star Trek movie, Star Trek V. But I, I recognize him from something he, he barely does anything in, which is the X-Files movie, where he plays one of the quote-unquote elders, along with William B. Davis and all the other kind of nameless white uh, Eastern European-looking actors. And uh, he's great in that, and he's good in this, and he's going to come back probably a lot more, I would assume. Didn't he get busted down to, like, uh, uniform a couple episodes ago? Or was that someone else? I thought it was him taking graft or something. Yeah, see, I didn't didn't remember, because, like, I felt like I had seen him before. No, this is the first time he showed up. Really? Yeah, Yeah, you're right. We're thinking of someone else who looks very similar to George Murdoch. Okay. At I mean, again, it's not just me, all right? these guys from central casting. I mean, James Gregory and George Murdoch look the same. Like, these dudes are all walking in out of central casting. Cast an old-looking white guy, George Murdoch. Cast another old-looking white guy, James Gregory. Like, they're fairly interchangeable because they're being given the same antagonistic role on this show, but their characters could not be any more different because Scanlan is just... A, a piece of shit. Like, he really is the... He is the kind of character that's written into this show to antagonize the female characters. And that's it. Hey, Dole. I mean, I'm surprised he didn't call Wentworth Dollface. Like, I'm, I'm... He got close. He got real close. I don't know how I screwed these two guys up. Dick O'Neill was Inspector Kelly. That's the guy who we were thinking of, or I was definitely thinking of. Well, I was thinking so, of it, too. All right. Again, like, so I'm glad I it wasn't there, just me. Yeah. I thought there was another guy in there, so... How about Stanley Brock in this episode? UHF's own Stanley Brock. Who we just saw is what? The owner of the club where that uh, centennial comedian uh, uh, wasn't being very funny. He was also in uh, a film I just recently talked about, uh, Steven Seagal's Hard to Kill, where he played the counterman. So he's he's a, he's a really good actor. I mean, I don't think either one of us need to tell anyone else that, but... He's not given much to do in this in this episode, which is kind of unfortunate because I wish he had been given a bigger role as a guest. Because a lot of the guests are given a lot more to do than he is. Well, I did look ahead in the world, and he will be back several times, and he actually gets a name. He's not just Burgess the Barber. He actually gets a, a proper name, and he comes back several times as that character. See, if you had been me, you would have called him Burgess the Barber Beefcake. Because that, like, that is the only thing I can think of, and Jesus Christ, the alliteration is right there. <laughs> By God, Burgess the Barber Beefcake's in the 12th precinct. He's hitting Barney with the pile driver. He's he's really fun, though. I like him, and I'm glad that he comes back. Is he coming back as the same character, though? No, different character. Mm, so kind of like Detective Landsberg. Yes, exactly. Or I guess Steve Landsberg playing... Detective Landsberg, as far as I'm concerned now, because it just seems like he's just playing the same character from the first time. And I think we're coming up on him getting back into the show. I think it's coming. Definitely. Yeah. Well, which is a shame, too, because he, I, as far as I know, he's the replacement for Chano. Right. And Chano, in this episode, he finally has some stuff to do, which is great. I love him taking out, well, kind of taking out Wentworth, going to the block party for security. And uh, then I like the whole idea of um, him pretty much yelling at Burgess the Barber towards the end about uh, guns and just like, 
hey, if I could get every single gun, I would throw them all into the East River, and there no criminals would have guns. You know, well, nobody would have guns. Bring any boats in? So you you want to hear something imminently depressing? Do you know whose final episode is the next episode? Who? Detective Wentworth. Oh. Yep. The next episode is Wentworth's final appearance in the show. I mean, again, but it tracks because this is 76. Alice starts in 76. And Alice not only starts in 76, it runs for almost a decade. I'm not going to speak on behalf of her, but I think she picked the right show. (laughs) But to be fair, she probably would have been on this show a lot more anyways. I mean, without her own show. Because if, I mean, I don't know about you, but this episode felt like it was either going to end the story, which is obviously, we haven't seen the next episode yet, but that is what happens. The story ends between Wojohowicz and Wentworth somehow, I don't know how, in the next episode. Or she comes back as a permanent guest. And my hope is that she comes back as a permanent guest, or a permanent cast member, but obviously, you have to take into account Alice and how big of a deal that was for her career, so... So towards the end of this episode, Wentworth, when she was at the party, apprehended this guy. Right. And she's not getting credit for the arrest. It's somebody else's collar. That's really her collar. And Scanlon comes out of Barney's office, and Harris is reading his next column for the Sentinel of Truth newspaper or newsletter for the uh, precinct. I swear that that happened before. Like, did did have we seen that before? Is this another time where season two is recycling something from season one? I don't remember him doing this before. Okay, I maybe I just like happened on this episode uh, like recently because I was just like, oh my god, deja vu! I am like seeing all this stuff that I swear I've seen before. So okay, I'm glad that with this that it isn't just a recycled bit. Yeah, it's not, but again, the issue with this show, something we've talked about kind of not, we haven't addressed it directly, but we've talked about it kind of in vagaries, is like the show tends to recycle stuff. And it's not always very subtle with its recycling, especially just kind of like basic plot lines. And, you know, well, we're just going to put a different character in this kind of plot line, but it's effectively the same plot line at the end of the day. I can see thinking... It has been seen before because there's been similar things where characters are interjecting when the antagonist is there. But man, I love Harris in this episode. I mean, you know, Ron Glass is amazing. So, you know, the one person we haven't mentioned is the C plot, which is Larry Bishop as the man who is doing his own laundry at the laundromat, meaning that he's not wearing any clothes. And uh, it's not given enough time to really do much. No, they all seem kind of sketched out by a nude man, and I'm sure they've seen a lot worse being in New York. Well, they also seem sketched out by Wojo and Wentworth being together, so... That's true. It was nice to see Larry Bishop, uh, son of Joey Bishop. Uh, Most people know him now as being in Kill Bill, I guess, as like the strip club owner, if memory serves. I haven't seen Kill Bill since it was out at the theater. I also have not seen Kill Bill because, uh, well, reasons. And then he is the director of a film called Mad Dog Time, which I have one of my listeners actually just sent me that on a DVD because he is desperately wanting me to watch that movie. And I didn't see it when it was out in 1996. I really don't want to see it in 2021, but I guess I'll go ahead and give it a shot since, you know, hey, free D- DVD. 
but it has Richard Dreyfuss in it. Oh, it's one of those. I mean, it's 1996, baby. I think we are doing like post Pulp Fiction kind of a thing, and I'm just not looking forward to it. What? Jeff Goldblum, Henry Silva, Gregory Hines, and Kyle MacLachlan doesn't get your blood pumping? Yeah, the post Pulp Fiction era of grungy crime films is a fucking wasteland. I mean, you and I both know that, and for the listeners who don't, like, that's a sad truth, that when you create something so influential, unfortunately, as Pulp Fiction is, everybody copies it. And rarely, if ever, does anyone come even close to that original film, or the film that that original film was ripping off, or films that it was ripping off. I'm so tempted to do a uh, worst Pulp Fiction slash Reservoir Dogs ripoff remake uh, influence month sometime. I think that would be uh, something else. Talk about Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Talk about Two Days in the Valley, Love in a 45. The only issue with that month is we have to, or you have to then, talk about how good Pulp Fiction is compared to those movies <laughs> and that's like that's like eating your own face to feed yourself <laughs> it kind of is like listener neither one of us are huge fans of tarantino mike has a much more storied history with tarantino than i do i does i do but yeah needless to say I'll, i mean if you want help eating your own face i'll be there with you <laughs> but it's i mean it'd be a little it'd be a little great to hear you just be like your pulp fiction's better than this but yeah, no, that, that post-Pulp Fiction like, time is not great. But at the end of the day, they should have given Larry Bishop more to do in this episode. Or just cut that plot completely, because it honestly adds nothing. Yeah, and he doesn't even get the good laugh lines. Because, I mean, with you know, we just saw in the previous episode where we've got um, you know, Mr. Clooney in the cell, he gets the jokes. You know, David Landry got the jokes. In the cell, you are able to throw those zingers out. But Larry Bishop doesn't really get the jokes. He doesn't he's not able to, which is a shame because I know that he's got comic chops and he can do that stuff, so he should have had more to do. The way I've always looked at the characters that are in the cell is they are the the equivalent of hecklers to a stand-up comedy show. They're hecklers. I mean, they're heckling the characters who aren't in jail. And it most of the time works because, again, like you mentioned, most of the time they're actually given really funny lines. Well, God, Marty. I mean, I miss Marty, frankly. And he always had such great zingers coming from there. Or even, like you said, in the last episode, there were some good zingers coming out of the last episode. But yep. this one, not not at all. And it is weird. You will notice when the show isn't utilizing the character in the cell. It, it, it really does stick out. Yeah, because they are pretty much center screen, like, through 90% of the episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unless we're spending a lot of time in Barney's office, we're going to see that person stuck in that cell through so many of the shots. Which we haven't done in a very long time. I mean, you see Scanlan and Barney in there a little bit, but Barney's office is, like, one of the places that we rarely ever get to see. Yeah, I think we get a little of him talking with uh, Wentworth and Wojo, but just, yeah, super briefly. And the stuff with Scanlan, it's almost abbreviated, where it's just like, whoa, wow, okay, that just happened, and then he's back out of the office already. I'm Look, I know we're, we're very close here to the end of Season 2, and that is the moment when uh, Chano leaves, and then in the next season, we're going to get uh, 
Steve Landsberg, which I'm looking forward to. And in the final episode of the next, or excuse me, in the final episode of this of this season, we're going to be introduced to Ron Carey, who would go on to play another main character in the show in Officer Levitt. So we're kind of like we're pushing right up against the final point of this show with the cast that we know. And I'm glad that we get an episode like this one where Wentworth is there as well, because if this is kind of the moment where the show's main cast starts to change drastically from where we were, Wentworth being there, everyone kind of getting one or two last hurrahs together is is nice. It's fun. Yeah, well, I'm very curious when we come back next month and talk about those next three episodes, what that departure of Wentworth is going to look like. Are they going to know that it's her final episode, or are they just going to waste that opportunity? Who knows? We don't know when Alice got picked up, when the pilot was, any of that stuff. So, yeah, I'm very curious what happens with uh, Linda Lavin in this last one. Me too, because I think her and Wojo should just ride off into the sunset together. Me personally. So until then, Chris, where can people find you? Find me on the internet at culturecast.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Christmas Claus. I work on a bunch of different podcasts, movie ones, TV ones, spooky, scary, true crime ones. Everything I work on is posted there. So head on over there. What about you, Mike? Well, as always, you can find me over at projectionboothpodcast.com. And then, yeah, I often work with Chris on Dreams for Sale, which is the Twilight Zone 1985 podcast. And you can find that at twilightzone85.com. I want to thank John Walker for our theme song, and I want to thank everybody for rating and reviewing the show over on iTunes. The four other people, you guys need to get over there and do that, please. Thank you. The four other people who listen to this podcast, that isn't you and me when we have to either listen to it or listen to it and edit it. Thank you for listening.